As James warns believers about the dangers of worldliness, he turns his attention to the wealthy. While being wealthy does not equate one with being worldly, the pursuit of wealth can lead to worldliness. For example, James addressed wealthy believers in James 4, 13 to 17. He admonished them not for making plans to make money, but for failing to consider God in making their plans. Following this admonishment, James now warns us regarding the management of our wealth. As stated previously, God does not condemn wealth. Wealth, in fact, is a gift from God, Deuteronomy 8.18. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who has given you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Indeed, God blessed many of his people with wealth. Job, Abraham, David, for example. As Proverbs 10 verse 22 states, it is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. You see, the problem is not with wealth itself, but with the love of wealth. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Love of money, literally affection for silver, refers to the coveting of money. Coveting any material possession is a clear violation of the Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet. Exodus twenty seventeen. Those who covet money will, in the end, serve money. Jesus spoke a warning to this issue of serving money in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew six twenty four. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Previously, in the context of James 4, 13 to 17, five principles for biblical stewardship from Proverbs were set forth. Let's review them. Number one, believers must seek wise counsel. Proverbs 12, 15 and 15, 22. Principle number two, believers must plan for the future. Proverbs 6, 6 to 8. Proverbs 6, 6 to 8. Principle number three. Believers must save and invest. Proverbs 21, 5 and 20. Believers must save and invest. Proverbs 21, 5 and 20. Principle number four. Believers must be ethical in their stewardship. Proverbs 13, 11, 16, 8, 22, 16. Again, believers must be ethical in their stewardship. Proverbs 13, 11, 16, 8, 22, 16. And principle number five, believers must be faithful to God in their stewardship. Proverbs 3, 5, 11, 28, and 16, 9. Again, believers must be faithful to God in their stewardship. Proverbs 3, 5, 11, 28, and 16, 9. Now ask yourself, are you following those biblical principles of stewardship? Along with these principles for biblical stewardship, believers should adopt for other principles regarding the budgeting of their wealth. Okay, so stewardship's the umbrella. Let's talk about the budgeting of our wealth. Four more principles. Number one, principle number one for budgeting your wealth. Number one, you must apportion your wealth to provide for your family. Believers must apportion their wealth to provide for their families. 1 Timothy 5 8. 
If anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Again, we must apportion our wealth to provide for our families. 1 Timothy 5.8 Principle 2 for budgeting. Believers must apportion their wealth to advance God's kingdom. We must apportion our wealth to advance God's kingdom. 2 Chronicles 29 and verse 3. Moreover, in my delight in the house of my God, the treasure I have of gold and silver, I give to the house of my God over and above all that I have already provided for the holy temple. 1 Corinthians 16, 2. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. Again, believers must apportion their wealth to advance God's kingdom. Principle number three for budgeting. Believers must apportion their wealth to care for those in need. Believers must apportion their wealth to care for those in need. 1 John three seventeen. Whoever has the world's good and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Again, we must apportion our wealth to care for those in need. And principle number four, believers must apportion their wealth to support those in full-time ministry. Believers must apportion their wealth to support those in full-time ministry. 1 Corinthians 9, 9-14. For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher ought to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do, not, do we not more? Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So let's recap those four principles for budgeting. Again, number one, we must apportion our wealth to provide for our families. That's number one. Number two, we must apportion our wealth to advance God's kingdom. Number three, we must apportion our wealth to care for those in need. And number four, we must apportion our wealth to support those in full-time ministry. Now, examine how you budget your money and ask yourself, am I meeting the biblical requirement for budgeting my funds, for budgeting my wealth? Now, Besides knowing how to budget or properly allocate your wealth, as believers, we should adopt six biblical principles to use our wealth to glorify God. I want to give you six principles, biblical principles, on how to use your wealth for God's glory. And these are set forth in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 to 19. 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So let me give you these six principles from 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. Number one, 
Believers must not arrogantly assume their wealth is deserved. You cannot assume you deserve what you have. Number two, believers not, must not put their hope or trust in wealth because it is temporary. Wealth is fleeting. It can be here today and gone tomorrow. Don't put your hope in it. Number three, believers must put their hope in God who is the source of wealth. Okay, God is, God is the source of wealth. He's the one who gives wealth. He's the one who can take it away. So we must not, or we must rather, put our hope in God. Principle number four, believers must use their wealth to do good deeds. We're to use our wealth to do good deeds. Principle number five, we believers must generously share their wealth. We must generously share our wealth. And number six, principle number six, we must invest in things of eternal consequence. We must invest in things of eternal consequence. Now, if we would follow those six principles, we could lay our head on the pillow at night and know that we've used our wealth, we've used our riches, we've used our money for God's glory. Are you using your money for God's glory? You see, understanding these various biblical principles regarding wealth will enable us to glorify God with our wealth and be blessed by God in return. However, just as worldliness seeps into our life through pride and causing us to make plans without God, so too pride can cause us to use our God-given wealth in a worldly manner. Money's like a fire. When appropriately used, fire is beneficial. Heat, fire provides heat and a means of preparing food. However, when fire is used carelessly or wrongly, it can destroy both life and property. So too, money can be beneficial or harmful depending on how it's handled. And as such, James sets forth four consequences of managing one's wealth without God. It leads to judgment, it leads to injustice, it leads to greed, and it leads to oppression. Managing one's wealth without God. Let's begin in chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments have become moth-eaten, your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasures. Managing one's wealth without God leads to judgment. Now, James begins in verse 1 with the same injunction used in James 4.13. Come now, I go noon. The injunction denotes a sense of urgency and we can render it. Stop what you're doing and pay attention. Again, James admonishes his spiritual children for unbecoming behavior. If you're managing your wealth without God, that's unbecoming. Now, the subject of his admonition is you rich. The rich refers to the affluent or prosperous. Now, there's much debate as to whom James refers to as the rich. One suggestion is that the rich refers to unbelieving Gentiles who are oppressing Jewish believers. However, 
This view seems highly unlikely in that James addresses this letter to believers. And there is no reason to think that unbelieving Gentiles would give this letter the time of day. Another suggestion is that the rich refers to unbelieving Pharisees and Sadducees who oppress Jewish believers. And while James could have referred to the Pharisees and Sadducees, it seems unlikely for the reasons to be discussed momentarily. A third reason is that the rich to whom James refers are wealthy believers. You see, in both the preceding and succeeding context of 5-1-6, James addresses believers. In James 4-13-17, he addresses believers who were merchants or businessmen. As such, they would have been wealthy. In James 5-7, James explicitly refers to his readers as brethren, a term used in the New Testament for those of the household of faith. Also, the use of the term therefore, un, in chapter 5, verse 7, connects what James says to his brethren with the preceding context to the rich. Now here, James' address to the rich is to Jewish believers who were wealthy landowners. That James is addressing wealthy believers in chapter 5, 1 to 6 makes what he says about them all the more appalling. Nonetheless, friends, we would do well to heed James' admonishment, lest the same would be said of us. See, these wealthy believers are managing their wealth without God. It should come as no surprise as this same group of believers made their plans without God. To those who manage their wealth without God, James admonishes them to weep and howl. The verb weep, kleo, means to lament, bewail, or sob bitterly. It was commonly used of lamenting for the dead. The verb howl, alaluzo, refers to moaning aloud to a God in supplication. The reason to weep and howl is because of the miseries which are coming upon you. The term miseries, talepuria, refers to affliction or distress. Previously in James 4.9, the verbal form be miserable, talepurio, was used to denote the idea of afflicting oneself or grieving over sin. Now, in James 4, 9, James invoked the prophetic call to repentance from the Old Testament. He said, be miserable and mourn and weep. By joining together weep and howl with the term miseries, James is again invoking the prophetic call to repentance. Repentance is necessary because judgment is coming. As James states in chapter 5 and verse 9, Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Indeed, judgment has already begun upon believers who manage their wealth without God. James states that judgments are coming. Aperkamai. That is, they are arriving. And in verses 2 and 3, James uses three perfect tense verbs, rot it, become, and rust it, to describe the judgments already occurring on the wealthy. 
without a doubt, James is referring to Christ's words from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 19 to 20. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. Now that perfect tense of rotted become and rusted is what is known as a Hebrew prophetic perfect. The Hebrew prophetic perfect views this future judgment as a past act. And as such, it denotes their present condition of their wealth. This threefold judgment upon mismanaging wealth forms the 19th triad of this epistle. James uses these three verbs to describe God's judgment on three types of wealth. Agricultural, clothing, and precious metals. These three types of wealth form the 21st triad of this epistle. The term riches, plutos, denotes an abundance of agricultural produce. Remember, James is writing to a largely agrarian society. Thus, their wealth is tied to their agricultural production. Jesus used this background in the parable of the wealthy landowner who built bigger barns to store his grain in Luke 12. Because these believers forgot God in managing their wealth, their produce has rotted, sapo, or become putrid. That is, their produce is unfit for human consumption. Garments, hemation, are long embroidered robes. Note the term here is plural, implying these individuals had more than one piece of fine clothing. See, unlike the wealthy, most people in the first century A.D. world were poor and only owned one garment that they had to regularly clean and mend. Because these believers forgot God in managing their wealth, their clothing has become moth-eaten, sort of brotas, or full of holes. The terms gold and silver, krusas and arguas, describe those precious metals used in coins and jewelry. Because these believers forgot God in managing their wealth, their coins and jewelry had rusted. Kata'o. Now some critics of scripture take this statement to depict James as uneducated or even stupid. They base their claim upon the fact that gold and silver do not rust. However, it was not James who was uneducated or stupid, but his critics. The Greek verb, kata'o, can be translated as rust, but it can also be rendered as to become tarnished or corroded. Gold can corrode and silver can be tarnished. And when gold corrodes and silver tarnishes, it loses value. Hence, James states that their coin and jewelries have lost their value and become worthless. Now, interestingly, corrosion and tarnishing are sometimes the result of non-use. They've stashed their monies away instead of putting it to use. They should have used their wealth to obey God's law by feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, and helping the helpless. Had they used their wealth in such a way, they would have stored up treasures in heaven. James states that their failure to use their wealth to help the hurting and helpless will be a witness against them. See, my friends, failure to care for the poor and needy is a witness, mortorion, or evidence of their true nature. Not only will their failure to use their monies properly become evidence against them, but it will consume their flesh like fire. The verb consume, as Theo, means to devour or destroy something. 
It's in the future tense, implying that this destruction is yet future. So what is James referring? A similarly worded phrase in the Deuterocanonical book of Judith helps to identify James' meaning. Judith 16, 17 states, The Lord Almighty will take vengeance on them in the day of judgment. He will send forth fire and worms in their flesh. They shall weep in pain forever. See, the idea set forth here is that on the day of judgment, God will punish the flesh of the wicked with fire and worms, and they will weep and be in pain forever. Now, such a description should remind us of Jesus' description of the lake of fire. Mark 9, 48, where their worm does not die, the fire is not quenched. Indeed, the time is coming when the Lord will judge the genuineness of your faith based upon the management of your wealth. Did you use your wealth to care for the hungry, the naked, and the helpless? Lack of care for others will testify before the Lord whether your faith is genuine or worthless. And those whose faith is worthless will be cast into the lake of fire. Matthew 25, 41-45 He will say to those on the left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves will also will answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Now James drives home the reason for their pending judgment and the loss of the wealth, their wealth associated with it. He says, it is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Now the phrase, in the last days, refers to the time between the first and second comings of Jesus. Paul wrote in Hebrews 1-2 that God in these last days has spoken to us in His Son. These last days began following Christ's resurrection and ascension and will end when He returns in judgment. Now the verb, stored up your treasures, thesarizo, has two meanings. On the one hand, it means saving up something for future use. On the other hand, it refers to hoarding. These wealthy believers were not saving and investing their monies for their last days, i.e. retirement. Instead, they were hoarding their monies at a time when they should have been using their wealth to help others. Because it is the last days and judgment is approaching, they should have been storing their treasures in heaven and not on earth. Indeed, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Matthew 6, 21. In other words, where you place your wealth reveals what is truly important to you. And if you're hoarding wealth and not using it to minister to the hurting and helpless, then you have failed to store up your treasures in heaven. And ironically, instead of storing up treasures in heaven, you've stored up wrath against yourself on the day of judgment. Romans 2, 5-6, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and, re and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. Friends, make no mistake. Ezekiel seven nineteen states, their silver and their gold will not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. 
Let's move on to James chapter 5 and verse 4. James 5 and verse 4. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. James 5, 4. Managing one's wealth without God not only leads to judgment, but it leads to the sin of injustice. Here these wealthy believers had defrauded their laborers. The pay of their laborers has been withheld by you. Now within the context of the culture, these laborers were day laborers. Before sunrise, these laborers would gather in the marketplace. The landowners would come and hire them for the day at an agreed upon price. These workers mowed or harvested the fields and received their pay at the end of the day. James, or excuse me, Jesus used the day laborer model in the parable of the laborers in the vineyard in Matthew 20 verses 1 to 16. James states that these day laborers had mowed your fields and yet were not paid. In other words, their pay was not being withheld because of an unfinished job. The verb has been withheld, aposterio, means to defraud or be cheated out of something. These wealthy landowners were defrauding their employees of their wages. The prophet Malachi announced God's judgment against those who defraud their laborers. Thus says the Lord, I will draw near to you for judgment against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages. Malachi 3.5 Interestingly, in his discussion with the rich young ruler, when quoting the commandments dealing with human relationships, Jesus inserted the command, Do not defraud. Mark 10.19 You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Christ paraphrased the command against coveting as do not defraud. What Jesus did here was to equate defrauding or cheating others out of something with coveting. Though they were rich, the wealthy coveted the laborer's meager wages and cheated them out of it. As Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10 testifies, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. Remember, James is admonishing believers who were wealthy landowners, defrauding their laborers. Before anyone thinks the believer would not behave in such a way, consider Paul's admonishment to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians 6.8. You yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Believers, are you defrauding someone? Maybe even a fellow believer? Again, it may not be a case of taking their money, but there may be some other way in which you're defrauding them. There may be some other way in which, some other injustice that you're committing against them. You see, these day laborers, were dependent upon receiving prompt payment at the end of the day to meet their daily needs. By withholding their pay, these wealthy landowners, landowners committed an injustice, jeopardizing the well-being of their workers and their families. Furthermore, such an injustice is a sin because it violates God's law. Leviticus 19.13 states, You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. As well, Deuteronomy 24, 14 to 15 says, 
You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land or in your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it, so that he will not cry out against you to the Lord, and it becomes sin in you. The statement cries out against you in James 5.4 is a clear allusion to Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 15. The verb cries out, crazo, is an onomatopoeia imitating the shriek of a raven. Crazo, crazo. Because the injustice done against these laborers, their pay cries out against the landowners. The present tense of the verb implies that wages due are continuously crying out to the Lord to be given to the workers. The crying out of the wages is similar to Abel's blood crying out for justice in Genesis 4.10. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. James also states that the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. The term outcry, boe, refers to a cry of mourning that pleads for deliverance and justice. Exodus chapter 2 and verse 23, the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 16, he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines for I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. These laborers mourn over their, the injustice done to them before the Lord. Those who suffer injustice can be assured that their prayers of mourning do not fall upon deaf ears. Again, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Matthew 5, 3. Indeed, the Lord hears and comforts those who mourn. Those who defraud or commit injustice against another should beware... Because the one who hears is the Lord of Sabaoth. If you've defrauded or committed injustice, beware. Now, Sabaoth is the Hebrew military term for armies or host. The Lord of armies or the Lord of hosts is a common Old Testament title for Yahweh. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5. Woe is me, for I am ruined, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It depicts God, that title depicts God as the mighty leader of angelic armies who brings judgment upon those who oppress the poor. Zechariah chapter 7 verse 9 and 10. Thus the Lord of hosts said, Dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother and do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. They did not heed the words which the Lord of hosts sent. Therefore great wrath from the Lord of hosts came. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 5. I will draw near to you for judgment against those who oppress the wage earner and his wages, the widow, the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And thus James hammers home the point that God will judge Everyone who commits the sin of injustice. Friend, if you're defrauding or oppressing or withholding justice from someone who is poor or helpless, know this, the Lord of hosts will surely will the sword of judgment against you.
Believer, beware. Verse 5. James 5, verse 5. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Managing one's wealth without God not only leads to judgment and injustice, but it leads to the sin of greed. In verse 5, James lays out three charges of greed. They lived luxuriously on the earth, they led a life of wanton pleasures, and they fattened their hearts in a day of slaughter. These three charges of greed form the 22nd triad of James' epistle. The first charge, they have lived luxuriously, translates one Greek verb, trufeo. It refers to self-indulgence or hedonism. These wealthy landowners defrauded their workers so they could build more extravagant homes and buy more expensive clothes. The rich man of Luke 16, 19 fits the bill of one who lives luxuriously. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. The second charge, they have led a life of wanton pleasure, also translates one Greek verb, spatalao. While similar to trufao, spatalao refers to living in excess. The verb is used in the Septuagint translation of Ezekiel 16.49. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, spatalao, abundant food, care of the seas, but she did not help the poor and needy. That term arrogance, spatalao, is used in the Hebrew is geon. It denotes the idea of living lewdly or indulgently. Interestingly, many are quick to state that the people of Sodom were judged for their sexual deviance. And while it is true that they were sexually deviant, Ezekiel states they were judged not only for living lewdly, but for being overfed and not caring for the poor and helpless. If God judged pagans for lewd behavior, gluttony, and a lack of care for the needy, how much will He hold us believers accountable for the same? The third charge is that they have fattened their hearts in a day of slaughter. The verb have fatten, trefo, means to gorge. Their term hearts, cardia, refers to their desires and passions. The charge implies they've gorged themselves on their inordinate passions like a calf being fattened up for slaughter. In particular, the day of slaughter refers to the day of judgment associated with the coming of the Lord, as James elaborates in James 5.7. Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. You see, when the Lord returns, friends, He's going to judge those who have gorged themselves with inordinate passions while ignoring the needs of the hurting and helpless. When managing their wealth, believers would do well to remember that the judge is standing right at the door. As James 5, 9 tells us. James chapter 5, verse 6. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Managing one's wealth without God not only leads to judgment and the sin of injustice and the sin of greed, but it leads to the sin of oppression. James announces that these wealthy believers have condemned and put to death the righteous man. The term righteous man, the chaos, is a masculine gendered adjective. It refers to individuals who conform to justice without failure. Habakkuk 2.4 and Romans 1.17 declare the righteous man shall live by faith. That is, he who is righteous by faith shall live. 
Believers are justified before God as righteous because of faith in their Redeemer. You are justified before humanity as righteous because of your conformity or obedience to God's law. Romans 2.13 For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. In James' rebuke, the righteous man refers to those believers being oppressed and victimized by those believers who manage their wealth without God. In comparison, these wealthy believers may, have been, may be declared righteous before God, but their failure to obey God's law in managing their wealth has caused them to be unrighteous in the sight of others. In particular, these wealthy believers have disobeyed the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, Exodus 20.13. Again, James states, these wealthy believers have condemned and put to death the righteous man. Condemned, kata de kazo, means to pronounce guilt or file a claim against someone. Put to death, fan uo, typically is rendered as murder. However, James is using fan uo in the context of a judicial verdict that deprives someone of their homes or wages. Amos 2.6 Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke its punishment, because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. Amos 5.12, I know your transgressions are many and your sins are great, you who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the court. Micah chapter 2 and verse 2, they covet fields and then seize them and houses and take them away. They rob a man and, of, and his house, a man and his inheritance. In other words, these wealthy believers filed false charges against the poor, which in turn would return verdicts swindling them out of their land and were stri stripping them of their living. Such actions are an extension of murder because after being swindled of land and stripped of wages, the poor often died of starvation or exposure to the elements. But I want you to notice here the reaction of the righteous to the oppression and persecution of the wealthy. He does not resist. You see, these believers obeyed the law of non-resistance as taught by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Matthew 5, 39 to 41. Now the context of non-resistance must be clarified. Jesus made this statement as clarification of God's law on retaliation. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's Matthew 5.38, quoting Exodus 21.24, Leviticus 24.20, and Deuteronomy 19.21. God established the law of retaliation to protect the innocent and limit retaliation or retribution so that it did not go beyond the offense. It is justly within God's law to defend yourself. If someone hits another person, God does not expect the person to just stand there and take it. But pastor, it says, if he slaps you, turn the other cheek. We'll deal with that in a moment. There's a biblical mandate to preserve life, which means that we as believers are ethically responsible to defend ourselves. However, the Pharisees had abused the law and used it to excuse all degrees of revenge. 
So to be clear, Jesus' statement about non-resistance is not establishing a principle for criminal offense. It's not establishing a principle for military actions. Jesus gave three specific examples where the law of non-resistance applies. Namely, one, insults against one's character. That's what it means to, if he slaps you in the right cheek, let him slap the other. It's, an, it's not a physical action. It's a Hebraism for an insult. So if one insults your character, let it go. Matthew 5.39 Also, the law of non-resistance applies to lawsuits to procure your assets. Matthew 5.40 And the law of non-resistance applies to infringements on one's liberty. Matthew 5.42 Jesus' point is that when believers are characterized by humility and selflessness, they will surrender their rights. As righteous ones, we should follow Christ's example. That is, we should strive to be non-resistant when wrong, pursue peace where possible, and commit the case to the Lord. Romans chapter 12, verse 14 and 17 to 19. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Never pay back evil to evil for anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Friends, it's interesting how many sins believers commit when they forget God. When we fail to consider God in making our plan, it leads to the sins of presumption, boasting, and omission. Here, believers commit the sin of injustice, greed, and oppression by not including God in managing our wealth. These three sins of injustice, greed, and oppression sadly are not new. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah the prophet announced divine judgment upon those guilty of these three charges. In Jeremiah 22, 13, and 14, and 17, he says, Woe to him who builds his houses without righteousness and his upper rooms without justice, who uses his neighbor's services without pay. And does not give him his wages. Who says I will build myself a roomy house with spacious upper rooms. And cut out its windows. Paneling it with cedar. And painting it bright red. Your eyes and your heart are intent only on your own dishonest gain. And on shedding innocent blood. And on practicing oppression and extortion. Believers. Be wise. Beware. How you manage your wealth speaks of the genuineness or worthlessness of your faith. Make sure that you're following the biblical principles of stewardship, the biblical principles of budgeting, and the biblical principles of using your wealth to glorify God. Let us not be guilty of the sin of greed, the sin of injustice, or the sin of oppression. And if anyone listening is guilty of those sins, I would challenge you to confess them before a holy God. Forsake the evil way. Be like Zacchaeus, who after coming to faith, realized the injustice and oppression done, went and repaid those to whom he had committed injustice and oppressed. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, Lord, we come to you and ask you for help in this area, in the managing of our wealth. Help us, Father, to follow those biblical principles in how we 
care for what you've given us and how we budget it and so that we can do it to use it to glorify you. Father, I pray if there's someone listening, Lord, who is who who has looked at themselves and honestly evaluated and said they've they're guilty of the sin of greed, they're guilty of the sin of injustice, or perhaps they're even guilty of the sin of oppression, that Father, Lord, they might cry out to you in forgiveness, that you would forgive them, Father, and then you would transform them and and help them to go back and fix those things. Lord, I pray for each of us that we would daily submit our wealth to you for your honor, for your glory. We pray in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.